This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. With what we know about climate change, should anyone add another child into that future? We'll get two points of view from women who write about it. Then we hear recent science proving extreme rainfall events and extreme drought will continue and get worse as the planet warms. I'm Alex Smith. Buckle up and off we go in this week's Radio EcoShock. When we talk about the conversation, it is usually that far-too-late talk about sex by parents with their kids who already know all that. Today, we are going to relabel the conversation a little bit. It's an inner talk that you have with yourself and maybe a careful dialogue you could share with close friends. And the question is touchy and it's heavy. Knowing the climate is going to be wrecked with huge consequences for humans and for nature, should I bring a child into that world? Or as journalist Madeleine Ostrander puts it, how do you decide to have a baby when climate change is remaking life on Earth? That's the title of her latest article in The Nation magazine. Ostrander is also a contributing editor at Yes magazine. Madeleine, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much for having me on the show. All right. Now, to talk about this, Madeleine, I find that I have to bring up my own thoughts and worries. Do you find this subject hits deep with some people? It does, um, particularly a, a certain segment of people, I would say, of course, people who are in their childbearing years. And, you know, the Yale Project on Climate Communication has divided um, particularly the American public into kind of six groups in terms of their positions on climate change. And there's a group called the Alarmed, which is about 13% of Americans. And these are the people who take climate change most seriously and know the most about it. And I would say that this conversation is probably hits the hardest for that group of people. I guess others would simply brush off any mention of climate change or fears for their kids' future. Have you encountered that? I have encountered that some people really aren't thinking about it. I don't know whether they brush it off or not. It's just that people go about their lives and they're aware of climate change, but it's not real for them. And I think there's a segment of people for whom it is somewhat real and a segment of people for whom it's very real. And for that latter category, I would say that those are the people who are most concerned about how climate change is going to affect their families. And I noticed early in your article you talk about Paul and Ann Ehrlich's dire predictions in the 1970s. I admire both of them. I've interviewed Paul Ehrlich, but I have to say their future of horror and famine didn't come true, at least not yet. Is that a bad example? Well, I brought out that example because I think that the conversation that Paul Ehrlich started in the 70s still informs how particularly environmentalists talk about the question of having children. So when people talk about the ethics of having children, and then actually it's not just environmentalists. I mean, people will talk about overpopulation. People will talk about whether or not it's morally right to add another child to the world because of the number of, of people who are already on the planet. I think that the conversation is shifting a little bit. I think even among population advocates, it's shifting somewhat so that uh, groups like Population Connection, which is the new name of the organization Ehrlich founded, Zero Population Growth, now talk about population in a systemic way, and they talk about 
human rights and women's rights and bringing health care to people and allowing people to have more choices. And that turns out to solve a large chunk of the question of having too many people. And I think what now we have to wrestle with is how we're actually living on the planet and how the ways that we're living on the planet are contributing to climate change. So my article was an effort to try to shift that conversation to some degree or to acknowledge that there are new pieces of it that we need to talk about. What are you picturing in the climate-changed future that brings you such serious doubts? Well, as a journalist, I spend a fair bit of time talking with scientists because I write about these issues on a regular basis. And scientists are doing a couple of things. One is that they're more and more using high-emission scenarios because that's, as a society, what we've been doing. So scientists are now often looking at the worst-case scenarios, the most extreme scenarios for what could happen in the world. They're also getting more and more precise about the kinds of predictions they can make and the ways that they can paint a dire and fairly specific picture of the possible impacts that we could have happen. So, for instance, there was a paper a year ago about mega droughts droughts lasting several decades across the Southwest and California that has really serious implications for water shortages in that part of the world, which of course has serious implications for agriculture and our ability to feed ourselves. There was another report by the New York City Panel on Climate Change saying that we could have Superstorm Sandy-style flooding in New York City on a regular basis by 2050. And when you think about 2050, any kid who's born now is just going to be in their 30s. So that means that your life could be marked by these extreme events. And that's a frightening thought for me. And it makes me think about what kind of future could I promise to anyone that I might bring into the world. Madeline, our parents and grandparents went through the Great Depression and then World War II, where 60 million people died. Is the climate future worse than that? I guess I would say that I think that the climate crisis is unprecedented in human experience. I think that when you talk to scientists, they will tell you that the kinds of scenarios that we could see would be unprecedented in terms of what humans have been able to deal with and experience. And so if we don't address the issue now, we may not be able to adjust and adapt effectively. We may not be able to thrive and survive. And so I think that it is a different scenario, and it requires different thinking than than even a, a situation in which you're confronting something like major conflict or warfare. I totally agree. I mean, one of the scariest aspects of climate change is that we have nothing in the past to compare it to. I just spoke to a scientist who said, well, going back 66 million years, we've never had such a fast injection of so much greenhouse gas in such a short time. Nobody knows what's going to happen, and and that's another big worry. Right, exactly. So, I mean, when you're thinking about becoming a parent, you have to make decisions now without knowing what the future is going to look like for you or for your kid. And that's really scary. And to some extent, I mean, that's life. You always have to make decisions not knowing what the future will look like. But I think you don't always have to make decisions with this big shadow of these these very troubling scientific predictions hanging over your potential life. And it makes it difficult to think about what is the right thing to do. I find we tend to make a lot of choices based on our memories, and if you could give me just a minute to share mine, I think that develops into a sort of second question. 
So beyond the personal decision to have a child, I'm thinking about when I was growing up, uh, I did have children, incidentally, and they revolutionized my life. Now I'm worried about my grandkid. But most Americans and Europeans never experienced what I had as far as nature. I mean, there were empty lots. It was safe to go play in them all day without adults watching. There were woods within walking distance. We went to the lake all summer. I feel like I'm a sibling with nature, but now with people in big cities, millions and millions more in big cities, they're never going to experience that. So my question is, perhaps we could say even without climate change, there are reasons not to have children in this civilization at this time. How do you feel about that? I think there's been this concern for a long time. When I wrote this article, I did some research um, and I looked at some of the groups, environmental and population groups of the 70s. And people said, in a way, they said similar things. They said, I don't know whether it's reasonable to bring a child into this world, given everything that's wrong with it. There are also reasons to have children. One thing I think is that it's important to recognize how personal and deep and difficult this choice is for everyone and to respect the choices that individual families make um, and give them the space to reflect on these kinds of issues. Um, I think that in the best scenarios, having children gives people a connection to the world and to the future and a sense of a stake in what happens in the world and a reason to be passionate and get involved and to have love and joy and all of the things that are part of being a human being. There are certainly other ways to do that, and there are many reasons why. Yeah, sure, having a kid might give people pause. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Madeline Ostrander. She's a contributing editor at Yes Magazine and a writer for The Nation. We're talking about the big question, should we bring another child into a world when the future is threatened by climate disruption? There are a few pockets of natural sanity left in all countries, and I'm thinking that women from Beijing to Berlin are asking themselves the question, is this the place to have a baby? It's sort of a where question. I wonder if that figures into this conversation as well. I mean, I can't really speak for, you know, women around the world, of course. I can talk about how in the article that I wrote, I attended these events that are being organized by a new group that started up out of the East Coast. It's called Conceivable Future. And there are groups of women and men getting together and talking about these very issues that we're talking about on the show. And you will hear in those rooms a very open and compassionate conversation, all different kinds of perspectives about what people feel, you know, how they feel they should make this decision. Um, I heard a mother who was pregnant with her second child and had a toddler at home talk about how she wanted to think about how to teach her kids the kinds of skills that they might need to confront a lot of uncertainty and to confront the difficulties that the world might present them. And she had gone into that process and that decision very thoughtfully. I heard other people say that they weren't sure if they wanted to have children. I heard people wrestling with the decision. I heard people who said that they had actively decided not to. Um, I've also heard from people both before and after writing the article talking about how they made a choice to adopt or they made a choice to be part of helping raise children in a different way, maybe looking after godchildren or you know, being involved in raising the next generation in a lot of ways. So I think there's a, a big diversity in the kinds of choices people can make about this. I think what's new is that people are starting to have this thoughtful conversation about what the future of the world looks like because of climate change and how might that affect their 
childbearing choices. Do you think, given that politics is currently almost in a state of denial, at least in one party, about climate change, and the mainstream media just blathers on about everything else, that this conversation is being driven underground, that it's kind of unpolite to mention it at dinner or at parties or at work or at school or anywhere? It's definitely impolite to try to have this conversation. It's a really difficult conversation. One of the things I reflected about in the the article that was in The Nation is that people would sort of whisper this conversation to me for a number, for a few years anyway. People I knew would say, I see what's happening with climate change and it makes me not want to have children. And then maybe they would still have children, but they wouldn't talk about their decision-making process. People would sort of murmur this idea to me and then they would change the subject quickly because it's a it's an uncomfortable and scary and difficult and very personal thought. I don't know if it's being driven underground by the political context. I think it's just a set of topics that we're not very comfortable talking about. But I think that it's a really important conversation because when you talk about climate change, not in terms of some abstract idea about future generations, but in terms of my own children and what kind of lives are they going to have, it becomes much more deeply personal. And when we start asking those kinds of hard questions, we begin to take the problem more seriously. And my hope is that having that conversation doesn't send it underground, but actually brings it things up to the surface that people haven't been talking about yet. And we know that just a century ago, there really was not much choice for a woman and very little for men either. It was part of human duty to have children. And it's still that way for billions of people in many parts of the world. So it's going to be a while before this becomes a global conversation. Sure, of course. Even in the United States, there are women who don't have a lot of access to things like contraception and health care. And so there are many people who don't have the choice about whether to have children. They have a baby, and then they have to think about how they're going to manage. There's ways in which this is a somewhat new situation, that we have a substantial number of women in Western and developed countries who do have the ability to make this a choice. And that's part of what makes this conversation and this moment different as well. Um, Millennials in the United States actually have a lower fertility rate than any previous generation in American history. And a lot of that is because of economic reasons. But it signals this shift in the ways that people are making this decision, I think. And I just read that in the United States today, almost half the babies were born unintended. So a conversation and the decision never took place. Right. Well, I think part of the conversation as well is not just how do you make this decision, but also once you have children, how do you think about what their future is going to be like and how do you act as a parent? And so those two conversations become bundled together in this discussion about climate change in the future and how are we a part of it. Madeline, have you seen any poll or survey or research to indicate how many women or what percentage of women are doubting the future enough to reconsider having children? I looked for that information, but I think that it's not a question that's necessarily on the radar yet of people who do polls. So I think that there's data out there about who's having children, and there's some data about how certain kinds of factors like the economy in particular might be influencing their views about the world. But the environment, I feel like we we don't really even have the right language for talking about these questions that I, that we're raising, you know, on this show right now. I think we're just starting this conversation. How does this 
fate of the world affect your decisions about having children. So, no, not yet. Well, it is the start of a conversation, but millions more people are learning about climate disruption all the time, despite the Koch brothers, and that means that what is a minority now may be the cutting edge. Uh, Who knows who could define a whole new movement or a, a current among human beings? Do you think that can happen? Yeah, I think that one thing I've noticed since I wrote the article, you know, which was a I admit it was, we've talked about impolite conversations. I mean, it's a frightening thing in a way to put out a personal statement like that. And it's not necessarily what I even typically write, but I've had a big response, particularly from young women. I would say probably most of the responses come from women under 35, but even women in their twenties who are wrestling with these questions and felt like they weren't seeing anyone actually talk about them in a public way. So I do think that this is on the cutting edge, and I do think that people who are younger, um, who grew up with hearing about climate change their whole lives, have a different perspective on it than other people. And I, I hope that the conversation will keep going and will grow. Where do men fit into all this? Well, certainly men do fit into it. I mean, people make decisions as couples, um, and there were a number of men at, for instance, these events that I talked about where people were getting together and having these conversations about climate change. For some men, it seemed to be still a little bit more of an intellectual conversation than an emotional one. But I think when you're in the, in the position of beginning to actually talk more seriously about having a child, it becomes more emotional and more personal and deeper. So, yeah, I mean, men are definitely part of the conversation. I think as a feminist, I mean, I, I guess I would say that the ultimate decision about whether you have a child or not should rest with women, but I think men are, are part of that discussion. For sure. And I was wondering if you have any suggestions for our listeners on how we could start up these uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, so one of the organizations that I profiled in my article is a new organization called Conceivable Future, and they are starting these conversations all over the country. They host events in different cities like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York and Providence. So, you know, one thing to do would be to try to connect with them. But I think you don't necessarily need an official format to have a conversation like this. I think just creating some kind of safe space where people feel comfortable talking openly about this issue and know that they're not going to be judged um, that was the premise of the events I went to. So I think I think it's possible to start this conversation, and I think it's important. And I think what I've discovered is that people are actually longing to have this conversation. Well, we have listeners in small towns in Ohio and Kansas. Are there online resources that they can find? Sure. The organization that I was just mentioning is called Conceivable Future. And if you Google that, you will find their website. There are... Other organizations for um, parents and children, there's a Northwest-based organization that is actually currently in the middle of filing a lawsuit against the federal government because um, they say that we have not done enough as a nation to safeguard the future of young people. There are lots of resources across the country for parents wanting to educate their children. There's also the organization Population Connection has a project called Population Education, and they um, have conversations in schools and with children about the issue of population and questions to do with having a child. So that's another resource. 
Okay, as we finish up, is there any other parting advice you'd like to leave with us? I think I would just say that I think that this is a really important conversation to people for people to begin having with one another. I think it's important to think, to be real about how climate change might affect your family, how it might affect the people that you love, how that might influence the decisions that you make. I think it's important to recognize that the predictions for climate change are coming within our lifetimes and could have huge implications on future generations. And I think once we take that seriously, I hope that it starts to transform the whole conversation we have about climate change and make it more possible to think in more personal ways about what it means and how do we make the kinds of changes that are necessary. We have been talking with Madeline Ostrander. She's a contributing editor at Yes Magazine and contributing writer for The Nation Magazine, where she published the seminal article, How Do You Decide to Have a Baby When Climate Change is Remaking Life on Earth? Of course, you can find more, including reader comments, at thenation.com or try the links in my own show blog at ecoshock.info. Madeline, thank you so much for getting this conversation going. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Later in this show, scientist Marcus Donat explains his latest paper on extreme precipitation in a hotter world. The old saying about the circus, there's a sucker born every minute. But hundreds of new humans are born every minute as the human population continues to multiply. Many will be Western-style super-consumers, the ones who drain resources from all over the world and fill the skies with greenhouse gases. If we can't control that urge, a major climate catastrophe may do it for us. Alicia Graves has one of the answers we need. She calls it green sex, do it for the climate. We'll find out what that means. Alicia has a master's in public health from the University of California. She's co-founded and leads a group called the Oasis Initiative, which stands for Organizing to Advance Solutions in the Sahel. The Sahel is that band of desert countries in North Africa where population is exploding in the face of poverty. But as we'll learn, they are not the big climate problem. Alicia Graves is also a research fellow for Project Drawdown, a group of scientists and other experts working to create a livable climate future. Alicia, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. Now, you do realize that a lot of people don't even want to hear about this subject at all. Is it because right-wing men, especially in the United States, have poisoned it with religious objections and paranoia? What is the problem? Why are people shying away from talking about population? That's a very good question. I think what happened is that in the 60s and 70s, as some of the listeners will know, there was a lot of talk about a population explosion. There was a book by Paul Ehrlich that got a lot of attention to the issue. And I guess because his projections didn't pan out as quickly as as he expected, people have dismissed it. Of course, there have been coercive population programs in many parts of the world, which have led people to be a bit repulsed by the idea. And actually, in my writing and when I get a chance to speak to people like today, I want to reinforce the fact that it's not so much about population control it's just meeting women's basic needs to separate sex from childbearing. Okay, now to hear some environmental groups tell it, all we have to do is install solar energy and drive electric cars. Problem solved. Alicia, can we really tackle the climate issue without talking about population? No, 
I, I don't think we can. I think I think we have to recognize that each one of us has a has a direct and multiplying effect on all sorts of environmental issues, resource usage for sure, but also emissions and climate. We have to recognize that that's part of the picture. And in doing so, we should also recognize that it doesn't mean telling women what to do. It's about giving us what we want. And our other instant mental defense, it seems to me, is to tell ourselves it's those billions of peasants over there somewhere who are responsible for population impact. What's wrong with that idea? Well, like you said in your in your opening, it's a silly idea because people in the poorest parts of the world, yes, 99% of population growth in this century is happening in less developed countries. So that is a major demographic story. But these are not the people who will be high emitters. We know that U.S. has some of the world's highest emission rates. And it's also true that almost one in two pregnancies in our country and in the U.S. are unintended. By unintended pregnancy, I mean a woman who said they did not intend or mean to get pregnant at that time or some of them ever again, but they do have a pregnancy. So there's an enormous opportunity to meet women's basic needs for reproductive health services. You know, when I read that in your article, it kind of blew my mind. I thought, well, look, we're in the age of the birth control pill and all sorts of ways, condoms, whatever. How is it possible that still almost half the babies in the United States are unplanned? Yeah, it is uh, It is very surprising. I think something to take into account is that uh, most women in the U.S. want to have, on average, two children. So to achieve that, uh, she will spend, let's just take an average woman, will spend about five years either trying to get pregnant or lactating, in which case she's not really eligible to get pregnant. And then she'll spend another 30 years trying to avoid getting pregnant. And so it's a very long time to use consistently and correctly without fail contraception. And uh, there are technological you know, malfunctions, there's human error. And so that also needs to be backed up with access to safe abortion, timely and safe abortion, um, which uh, in in light of the current political climate, we have to look very carefully at the, the views of our potential next president are. I'm, I'm scared about the idea of Ted Cruz, for example, because he wants to deny women rights to, to these basic reproductive health services. Yep. Pretty scary step backwards if that happens. Now, I wish you would take just a little time to explain this formula called IPAT, how it works and why it matters. Tell us about that, please, Alicia. Thanks, Alex. Yes, I will. Um, I equals P times A times T is a very important equation and pretty straightforward. It was published by Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren, who's the science advisor to the current president. It stands for impact impact on the environment equals population times affluence times technology. And I think affluence is, in this case, it's our ability to consume. So if we think about it in terms of climate, for example, we know that consumption, especially use of electricity, has, a again, a multiplying effect. And T is technology. Now, I've seen um, another version of this where T, the technology, can actually reduce our impact on the environment. Um, and we're seeing this more and more with with climate solutions. Now, conservatives who we talked about, who are sometimes against women's control over reproduction, 
also claim to be concerned about spending, about fiscal responsibility. What are the high-cost ways to reduce greenhouse gases versus a low-cost approach? I can't go too much into the details because I'm focused on on two approaches. Let me tell you about these. Family planning is a very low-cost approach. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute estimates it's about 6 to $10 per user of family planning per year. So it's a very low-cost approach by averting, uh, allowing women to, to achieve her family size or uh, avoiding an unintended pregnancy. Another low-cost, very, very high-payoff approach is by educating girls. And education, of, I hope you'll agree, is a basic human right. Uh, it's also essential for development. And yet secondary school education, especially for adolescent girls in poor parts of the world, the rates are abysmal. And so this is something that has, uh, you know, in addition to, to upholding basic rights, um, allowing women to have more control over her future, it also has a, a climate payoff because by delaying, by keeping girls in school, it helps delay their marriage and delay their childbearing. It makes it more likely that they'll use family planning in the future and be able to negotiate that with their partner. I mean, it even has, uh, there's even evidence to show that women who go to secondary school tend to have better farming outcomes, better crop yields, et cetera. So that's another example. But one other thing I would say uh, in response to your question is, for any listeners who are interested in, in these different climate solutions, visit the Project Drawdown site. The solutions are more surprising and more diverse than we think, and they're looking at the top 100 solutions that can be scaled up in the coming decades to draw down um, the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, not just stabilize them, just under the 2 degrees Celsius dangerous cutoff that's been identified. So if I understand your writing, we make a fundamental change in greenhouse gases by re-examining our attitude towards sex. So what do you mean when you say green sex? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a pretty uh, a clever name for it. But as I said at the beginning, I, I really just mean allowing women to separate sex from childbearing. And for many of us, we take this for granted, but in parts of the world and in communities in developed countries like the U.S., there are plenty of women who aren't able to do this for various barriers, some of them political and some of them more personal. So I just mean allowing each woman to choose her family size and not let it be something that happens to her. Well, men are definitely involved because I think in many parts of the world and in the United States, there are men who have been brought up to believe or do believe that the more kids they have, uh, the more manly they are. Yes, Alex, that is true. And there's the old expression, it takes two to tango. In parts of the world, there's definitely uh, a lot of respect that's garnered on people who have large families. That's something that needs to be recognized but there are also plenty of men who say that they, you know, either had desire to wait longer before they had a kid or to stop having them altogether, and yet they find themselves um, with a partner who's pregnant. 
So I think we should focus on those people who have a need today and make sure that all of those needs are met. Around the world, there are about 220 million women who say they want to stop or space their uh, next pregnancy but aren't using family planning. And so there's a, a huge opportunity there to reach those women and have tremendous benefits for her personally and her taking control of her life also her health, her, her family's health, and, and of course, like I, we started with, the climate. So, Alicia, to be clear, are you telling men and women to stop having children because the climate future is so terrible? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I have two children myself, and um, I understand the, their immense value, and I think actually that they will be the ones to really bring the creativity and the imagination to help solve the climate crisis. I'm telling men and women to to recognize that there is a need for, for family planning. It needs to be put back onto the agenda. We don't have to be afraid to talk about the relationship between population and the environment. We need to look at countries that have had successful voluntary family plannings where family size has fallen very rapidly, and they're around the world. It's Iran, Thailand, Rwanda, for example. These are countries, when it's prioritized, Families tend to choose to have fewer children. Couples choose to have smaller families. And so this needs to be on the, on the international agenda. You know, I think Iran is such a stimulating example because there we have a Muslim country and people have this prototype, well, uh, you know, preconception that a Muslim country, uh, of course, uh, they won't have family planning. So what do you know what happened in Iran that made it work there? I know a little bit about it. Um, they realized that that population was growing very fast and that it was detrimental to the country's development. And they chose to invest time and, and money, of course, in making sure that each couple could reach their desired family size. One of the things that they did was put in place mandatory couples counseling before marriage. And I think in the counseling, they talked about many things, but of course, they talked about reproduction, how babies are made, and how to prevent pregnancies in the case that the couple chose to. So if this is something systematic, again, voluntary, backed up with good access to health services, it's not enough to know about how to how to prevent pregnancy. You need to have the technology, the, the contraceptives, either modern or there are traditional methods as well in order to do that. It's some people focus so much on getting the information out about avoiding pregnancy, but are afraid to then back that up with good access to contraceptives. You need both, of course. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith talking with American public health expert Alicia Graves about green sex. Alicia, what is the situation in the Sahel where your organization Oasis Initiative works? Yes, Oasis, uh, as you mentioned, is a project of the University of California, Berkeley. I started it with my colleague Malcolm Potts a few years ago. We are focused on the Sahel region. It's an ecological zone just south of the Sahara Desert. It's a transition zone that stretches across the widest part of Africa. And it really is going to be, it already is, ground zero for climate effects, man-made climate effects on human health. 
the region has suffered severe droughts and and famines since the 70s into the 80s. Today, at the heart of the region, in the in a country called Niger, nearly half of children are stunted. They're not growing to their physical or cognitive potential because of malnutrition. We're bringing a, a, a multidisciplinary approach um, to looking at what can we do, what will work, especially for girls and women in this region in order to uh, reach a place of true development. And we have partners in the region, other universities. We're focused on, on really practical approaches to girls and women's empowerment, especially how to keep girls in secondary school or at least give them some basic uh, life skills and we're also looking at how to reach women with family planning, um, which is kind of the last frontier in the field of family planning. It has some of Niger has the world's highest fertility rates, very large desired family sizes. And yet there are about one and a half times as many women who, who want access to contraceptives but aren't using them as there are women who are using them. So even in this very difficult place to work, there are tremendous opportunities to help women meet basic needs for family planning and for taking control of their lives. And are people there beginning to get cars and motor scooters and, and things that will emit more greenhouse gases, or are they merely set up in the place where our greenhouse gases are going to have the most impact? That's a good question. I think most of the least developed countries are really uh, not on a path towards great economic development. Part of the story is because their populations are growing so rapidly that the, the, the GDP, the, the per capita economic growth, is not able to keep up with the population. I think you make a good point. A lot of the lesser developed countries are on a path towards development and they will be emitting more greenhouse gases in the future. But I think really the story for the least developed countries, unfortunately, is that unless some, some urgent investment and action is, is taken in the very near future, there'll be more victims of climate change than they will be contributing to it via, you know, all of these lovely luxuries that most of, of your listeners are privy to, like motorbikes and cars, electricity at the home, etc. Bill and Melinda Gates, in their most recent annual letter, actually, Bill talks about what a common good energy is, and we, you know, make, he makes a very good case for investing in green energy and really approaching it in a, in a much more creative, much more scalable way. Because it's not something, of course, we don't want to deny this to anybody. It's it's, it's key to our development. Of course, if drought continues to hit that part of Africa, followed by floods, as it so often is. We may see more climate refugees. We're already seeing a lot of North Africans are headed to Europe as economic refugees, you can call them, but I would call some of them climate refugees. That'll change the picture because then they'll want to live like Europeans. Yes, the the refugees from Syria last summer, which of course is still continuing, but it was in the news a lot last summer, it got a lot of attention. And it, what people need to know is that this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, the UN projects that about 60 million people will move out of the desertified areas, the places in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, that are becoming more desert-like because it's harder to live there. About 60 million people moving out of those regions by 2020, which is a huge number. 
It doesn't mean that all of them are going to Europe. They could be relocating in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But these are very vulnerable populations that need our attention and, and really forethought. This is just at the cusp, and there are some things that can be done now, like heavy, heavy investments in adolescent girls' education, voluntary family planning, and, of course, planning for migration. So, yeah, migration is a, is a big part of the story. Now, we have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We had the recent Paris Climate Talks. Do these international bodies take the population angle seriously, or are they afraid to talk about it? Alex, that's a very good question, and um, I don't know the answer. There's a great report um, that uh, is the Climate and Health Report uh, from the last uh, series of IPCC reports, and it recognizes reproductive health services, including modern family planning, as having the potential for climate mitigation to reduce carbon emissions. It talks about co-benefits for human health and the climate. So there are some people uh, in these institutions that definitely do recognize it, but oftentimes I read reports that really focus on how rapid population growth is a challenge. There is uh, a recent World Bank report about climate impact amongst uh, poor families in poor parts of the world, and they cited rapid population growth, I think, 10 times as a contributing factor. But then in 70 pages of recommendations, they didn't go on to, to recommend investment in voluntary family planning. So some people either uh, don't understand the relationship between population and environment, but I think more often they don't recognize that something can be done that upholds women's basic human rights and has positive effects on the environment. And you've linked to a paper titled Reproduction and the Carbon Legacies of Individuals. It's by Paul Murtaugh and Michael Schlacks. What does that contribute to this conversation? Oh, that's a, a very interesting analysis that looks at, yes, as you say, the, the carbon legacy, the effects, the carbon effects of each child that a couple has. And I forget exactly how they do their analysis, but of course, each child has his or her own carbon footprint, but then they have the likelihood that they will again have a child. So it, it's like a multi-generational type analysis to look at the carbon effects. And the takeaway is, that having uh, an additional child will have, uh, or sorry, um, let me put, put this positively because it is a positive story, that averting an unintended pregnancy will have greater benefits for um, reducing greenhouse gases than all of the other things that we can do combined. This is a, in, in the case of high-consuming couples. Averting an unintended pregnancy will have greater benefits than buying a Prius and uh, you know, going solar electricity for the house, et cetera. So uh, I think it's a, it's a really good paper. I'm glad you brought that up. So wrapping this up for our listeners, I'm sure we're all wondering, how do we approach this? How do we talk to other people about this subject? Do you have any ideas for conversation starters? I think that we don't have to be afraid about making the connections between population and the environment. You can be concerned about the environment and, and population's effects on it, and at the same time, want to uphold uh, women's rights to, to have a family. Because we have about 40 years of data from around the world showing that when countries, when governments prioritize and invest in voluntary family planning, family size falls. 
that's uh, the conversation opener. We need to get population back on the world agenda. Do you have any websites, a Facebook page, or a Twitter feed that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Yes, I would. Um, please look at our website, oasisinitiative.berkeley.edu. We are looking for partners, and we are also have a Friends of the Sahel Network, which is a button you can click if you would like to join and and become one of our, our, our friends who's interested in the Sahel region of Africa. We've been speaking with public health expert Alicia Graves about a solution for climate change where each of us does have some power, and that's giving women the choice on reproduction and producing fewer high-carbon consumers. As always, listeners, you can find those links just mentioned and more in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Alicia, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Alex. Let's talk about extreme precipitation events. News about record rains or sometimes snow has become so frequent I could do a show on it every week. Just recently, a half dozen people died in floods in in Louisiana. Parts of Brazil were hit with half their average monthly rainfall in just one day. In the desert, the United Arab Emirates just recorded their highest single-day rainfall ever, 50 times normal for March. New research says this is only going to get worse as the world warms, but with an unexpected twist, for me at least. A letter published in the journal Nature Climate Change is titled More Extreme Precipitation in the World's Dry and Wet Regions. In Sydney, Australia, we've reached the lead author, Marcus G. Donut, a research fellow at the Climate Change Research Institute at the University of New South Wales. Marcus, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yeah, hi. Good. Well, let's start here. How do we define extreme precipitation? Oh, there's certainly many ways to define extreme precipitation. It really depends on what you're interested in. Yeah, If it's a prolonged rain event that brings you extreme rainfall over several days, or um, in many cases, it's really just the very short and intense storms that bring large amounts of rain just in a few hours. What we did in this study was um, considering extreme rain as the annual maximum of the rainfall amounts that falls within one day. So basically we had, had daily recordings from many um, parts of the world, and basically we're just choosing the annual maximum of all of these annual values. And this measure is for us a good compromise between capturing relevant extremes but also having a reasonable global coverage because these global totals of rainfall are a temporary aggregation that is um, observed in many and also reported from many parts of the world. So this helped us to increase the global coverage. So the type of events that I just described as recent news, would that fit into the kind of research you're doing? Absolutely, yes. So, so basically this measure of daily totals and looking into the annual, annual maxima of these daily totals totally would still capture these kind of um, events that are related to intense storms, mainly of convective nature, that were related to those ex- extreme rainfall events, for example. For years, Marcus, scientists have told us as global warming proceeds, the dry places will get drier and the wet regions will get wetter. Is that really what you found? This is actually not what we found, but we were not the first to basically challenge this um, wet get wetter, dry get drier um, theory, which has become kind of a paradigm. But this has also to do 
with the way the wet and the dry regions are defined or what parts of the world you're considering. So the dry get drier, wet get wetter theory basically was based on a study by Held and Zoden in 2006 who analyzed a climate model experiments and who considered basically the entire globe including land and ocean and in these climate model experiments they basically found that the geographical latitudes that are usually dry would become drier in a warmer climate and the latitudes that are usually wet would become wetter. But so this also depends on, on basically this very simplified spatial aggregation by just looking into certain latitude bands. There have been a number of studies recently looking into the whole pattern of precipitation changes more detailed, and they actually found, on the one hand, if you look into the different regions in a more geographical sense, with more geographical detail, rather than just the latitude, then the picture might look different. And more importantly also, if you're only looking at precipitation over land, then this dry-get-drier, wet-get-wetter theory does not hold, even in the climate model. If the dry places on Earth get more rainfall, isn't that good news? In part. In, in terms of water balances, it is certainly better than receiving even less rainfall. <laughs> However, as these increases are related to increasing global temperatures in terms of global warming, they go also in hand with in higher temperatures. And so if you're thinking about water availability, it's a bit more complex than just saying there is more rain because at the same time, there might also be more evaporation as um, the climate becomes warmer. And so the balance between the evaporation and the increased rainfall, and so there might not be more water available, for example, for growing plants. At the same time, what we focused on with this study was not only looking into the changes of the total precipitation, but also extending the whole analysis to rainfall extremes, the kind of extremes we talked about earlier, yeah? basically the maxima of, of the daily rainfall amounts. And here we see that these extremes show very robust increases between the observations and the climate models with climate warming, because these rain events usually are storms that bring a lot of water just in a um, very short time period of a day or less. This then it's a significant result in terms of flooding and related impacts like soil erosion, for example. Yes, it can cause a lot of economic damage and damage to people's lives when their houses flood, their business flood, the road floods out, and so on. So your study is saying that we can expect more of that, more damage, as the climate warms. Exactly. So basically, as the climate warms, the atmosphere can hold more water. So there's, um, in, in physics, a relationship. It's called the Clausius-Clapeyron relationship. And this defines what's the saturation water pressure of water in the atmosphere. And it tells us that with every degree of higher air temperatures, the air can hold about 6 to 7% more water vapor. And so if this increased amount of water vapor in atmosphere all rains out at the same time, then this would be related to stronger rainfall extremes and the related impacts that you were just talking about, correct? Okay, now a senior, say somebody who's 60 years old, is looking back and they, they think they never saw those kind of rainfall events. I'm always hearing this on the news. Well, I never saw rain like this before. Is that true? Well, let's say... At any individual location, it is really hard to measure these things, to really see if it's a record 
or not. This is related to several factors. On the one hand, precipitation, in particular extreme precipitation time series, are very variable in time. So we, we also call it very noisy in time. So this, this means that, that they show a lot of fluctuation between different years. For example, there are years that are very wet. There are other years that are very dry. And so if looking at any really just individual location, it is very hard to actually find statistically robust, statistically significant trends in these very noisy time series. What we have to do to basically get a clearer picture of the signal of the actual change compared to the noise is, for example, we would have to aggregate spatially by basically, for example, calculating the spatial average over a slightly larger region rather than just look, looking at one station time series. And this averaging reduces the noise, reduces the strong variability that, that is apparent in the individual time, time series and then really helps us to more clearly actually see the signal, which is the signal which in this case is then the long-term trend in the extreme precipitation, for example. So if somebody experiences a record rainfall at, at a specific location, and say an old person, as you were referring to, has never seen this before, this, this might, might in fact be true for this location and also in the, in the memory of this person. But doing such analysis globally over larger regions where all the different time series have a lot of noise, it's a statement that's really hard to prove statistically. Going forward, what does this study suggest will be happening by 2050 or 2100? Will records continue to fall so much that we just expect rains to become heavier all the time? Yeah, exactly. So actually in this study, we also looked into future climate projections. So one part of the study really looked into the past 60 years where we could compare observations to what the climate models were doing. And we found that actually with the way we analyze the data here, there's a high robustness, there's a really strong agreement between what we're observing and what the models are doing. So this really gives us confidence that the models actually are doing a pretty good job in simulating this kind of precipitation extremes we're looking at here. And so in the second step, we then also looked into the future simulations, future projections of the climate, for which obviously we don't have observations, but the climate models are a useful tool to look into the future. And these simulations actually suggested the tendencies that we've observed for the past 60 years will continue over the next century. So basically we looked until the end of the 21st century. And so we see clear continuing increases in the precipitation extremes in these dry and also in the wet regions in the future projections of the climate models. And we then also tried to understand this increases a bit more detailed because they show actually a wide range of increases and maybe a wider range then we would be happy with giving a, as an indication, for example, to stakeholders. At the same time, the different future projections, as they were, for example, also pre presented in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change assessment reports. And here we also see that actually the increase in global temperatures shows quite a range between the different models. Yeah? For example, it might increase between 3 and 6 degrees globally for a given scenario. And so what we tried also in this study was to um, relate basically the precipitation response to the global climate response. And here we also found a very strong relationship that actually 
the spread, the uncertainty in future rainfall simulations, future rainfall projections, is strongly related to the amount of global warming to this particular model. So basically a model that shows a stronger global warming also shows a stronger precipitation response, in particular in the drier regions, whereas a model that shows less warming in response to increased greenhouse gases also shows a slightly weaker response in these extreme precipitation measures. So that we can really formulate this relationship that there's basically this dependence of precipitation changes on global temperature changes. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Marcus Donut from the University of New South Wales in Australia. I'm wondering, do extreme rainfalls occur more in certain regions? For example, will they hit the developing world harder than Europe or North America? Uh, well, th this is a question that's still hard to answer for us. So what we knew already before the study is that on a global average, we're seeing more extreme rainfall and also more intense extreme rainfall. But the spatial patterns of how it's exactly changing in a specific region still were quite uncertain because there's some disagreement also between different observational data sets and in particular also between the observations and the climate models. So to get closer to a regional information, we took a slightly different approach in this study. We did not, for example, look into a specific country in, for example, Africa and we did, or and compared it to changes, for example, in the U.S. to have this comparison between developed and undeveloped world. What we did here was really looking into all the regions globally that are dry and all the regions globally that are wet and analyzing the changes in these as an average over these dry regions and over these wet regions. But this means that, for example, we're putting together the changes in, let's say, North Africa and the Sahara with the Australian desert regions, but also with the dry regions in Southwest North America. This approach helped us to get this really consistent results, but still it is possible that in individual locations that are contributing to this larger average, there may be some different changes. So unfortunately, we are not yet really able to tell if a specific country, a specific region will be um, more strongly affected than others. Well, as we wrap up, I want to ask you, are you personally concerned about our future if climate change goes further or faster than the IPCC has forecast? Um, I am certainly concerned in a sense that this will change the planet we are living on. This basically also calls for the responsibility of all of us, but particularly of the politics, to find solutions to help people who may not be able to live in the place where they lived before. This is probably the major impact. I don't think that we have to talk about horror scenarios that the Earth will basically not longer be a livable place or that humans may even get extinct or something like this. It is more really that maybe some regions are no longer good regions to live in, in terms of, of course, we're talking on the one hand about sea level rise, so some land areas may just disappear. But we're also talking about other changes, such as there might be still areas where drought increases and it may not be possible to grow crops and to basically have a living there. And so there must be solutions just to settle those people elsewhere. In addition, of course, there's impacts to ecosystems. There's, there might be extinctions to certain plant and animal species. And these are all 
just losses that are not reversible and that make me pessimistic, but the whole global warming science and, and the impacts it has on so many aspects of the world is a very complex thing and there's many aspects to worry about. But I also think that our life and our society will continue. We just have to be prepared that it might be differently and that we will have to find solutions for several impacts that are related to this warming. Okay, from the University of New South Wales Climate Change Research Centre and the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Systems Science, we've been speaking with Marcus G. Donat. He's the lead author of a research letter just published in the journal Nature Climate Change. It's titled More Extreme Precipitation in the World's Dry and Wet Regions. Marcus, thank you for spending time with us. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. We're out of time, in this radio show at least. Join me every week for Radio EcoShock and get all the links for this program in the weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Thank you for listening and caring about your world.